This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by Clarence Jefferson Hall, Jr. He is Assistant Professor of History at Queensborough Community College and has been a leading thinker at the intersection of environmental and carceral studies. He's here today to talk about his first book. It's called A Prison in the Woods, Environment and Incarceration in New York's North Country. And it came out back in November from the University of Massachusetts Press. Dr. Hall, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Before we get to prisons, I wonder if we could start with some some scene setting. You know, I wonder if you would help unfamiliar listeners with two things. Um, One would be understanding the place of the Adirondacks in the history of wildlands conservation in the United States. And the other would be to understand the social and economic life in the region over the past half century. Okay. Thank you for having me. Uh, So the Adirondacks are a roughly 6 million acre expanse uh, in northeastern New York, roughly wedged between Ontario, Quebec, and Vermont. Uh, Historically, the territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, uh, primarily the uh, Mohawk, who traversed the region uh, for thousands of years before uh, European settlers arrived. And the region's place in conservation is one that's very important in U.S. environmental history. Uh, In the early to middle part of the 19th century, the Adirondacks was being uh, overlogged and overmined and overdeveloped. There were no environmental regulations or restrictions in place. And the threats both to environmental health, public health, and the economic health of the state and the nation were significant. Uh, And so when state leaders and the state's upper class came together beginning in the 1870s, they started thinking about ways to restrict uh, economic uses of the Adirondack environment um, in the interest of saving uh, resources for future use, but also um, promoting better environmental practices, better uh, economic practices in the region. So the first uh, large environmental law that's still in place today, the State uh, Forest Preserve Act of 1885, restricted uh, large numbers of properties in the Adirondacks that were already state-owned from being sold and from therefore being developed. 
But the Forest Reserve, when it was created in 1885, didn't solve the bigger problem of overlogging, overmining, and overdevelopment because there was still a significant amount of privately owned land in the Adirondacks. And so a push began after the Forest Reserve was created to create a state park. Um, so to turn the entire Adirondack region into a state park that would be restricted only to leisure and recreation. The problem was the state did not have enough money to pay for all the land in the region. And many of the private property owners, logging companies and mining companies especially, did not want to sell their land. So the state went ahead in 1892 and created the Adirondack Park, which still exists today. Uh, drawing a blue line on the map around the region. And it's an unusual park because to this day, it contains both state land, forest preserve land, where logging and mining and other economic activities are not allowed, but also still a significant amount of privately owned land. So when the Adirondack Park was created, it was really aspirational. It was really the state saying, okay, we're calling this a park now. It's not really a park because people are living there. People are doing business there. But hopefully someday in the future, the state will own all the land within this, this boundary and it will only be used for leisure and recreation. And that has never come to pass. Uh, the region today has about 130,000 year-round residents, has an even larger number of second homeowners and tourists who visit the region throughout the year and still uh, contains a large uh, presence. The logging industry is still active. The mining industry is still active. Um, institutional healthcare, which is one of the old industries in the region, is still around. And prisons, which we often don't think about when we talk about the Adirondacks, which were here before the creation of any of these laws, um, are still here. So it's a sort of complicated mix when you when you when you drive into the region and you see those big signs that say entering Adirondack Park you have to sort of put the word park in quotation marks because it's not like visiting central park or yosemite um people live here people uh cut down trees here people mine iron ore here people farm here um it's not a park in the sense that we might think about it traditionally now in terms of the economic or the economic picture of the region, um, it's never been very good. Um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why prisons ended up being built here. Uh, it's always been a difficult place for people to live year round, which is why it's uh, underpopulated, I guess you could say. Uh, the terrain, the highest mountains in New York State are in the Adirondacks. Uh, the soil is rocky. The growing seasons are very short. Um, the, the weather can be very unpredictable. I mean, there was a frost here last night and it's almost June. Um, so the population's always been small. It's always been a difficult place to, uh, to earn a living. And this area, even to this day, has the highest unemployment rates in New York State. And that's been the case for at least the last 60 years. Um, the highest poverty levels in New York State. Um, and the highest rate of depopulation in New York State. Um, so the population is older, and it's actually it's going to be hard in the future for local governments to, to sustain the local population with uh, so many old people living here and few young people to sort of pick up the slack. So uh, that's sort of, I hope, 
a good explanation of the uh, conservation history of the Adirondacks and also the uh, economic picture here. Thanks so much. And, you know, this, your book here is, is the first book-length environmental history of prisons. And I wonder how you came to see and see as important the environmental dimensions of the story of American prisons and incarceration. Well, it's sort of, it's sort of one of those things where, you know, it's, it, it's hiding in plain sight, right? Like if you've ever watched a movie set in a prison or where there's a prison, there's a sort of exterior shot of a prison, um, or if you've ever driven past one or God forbid visited one, um, they exist in an environment, right? They're not separated from an environment. So I guess the first part of the question, you know, it's sort of, I guess, just something that's self-evident, right? Everything, every piece of infrastructure exists somewhere. So the question then is, how did that piece of infrastructure get there? Um, And that's really the question that I started off with when I started working on this project. I grew up in this region. My father worked in one of these prisons. So I knew that there were prisons here growing up. Um, but I really didn't know much about how they got built, who brought them here, how those decisions were made, how um, really none of the history was familiar to me. Um, so I just started with that basic question. How did these things get built? And since the ones I write about in the book are inside the Adirondack Park, there had to be an environmental dimension to their construction. Um, and so as I did the research, that became evident um, that in, in the 1840s, when the, the prison in Dannemora, where my father worked, uh, that when that one was built, even though there were no environmental regulations in place at the time, the state's decision to build a prison in that location was specifically because of the local environment, because of the iron ore that was available uh, for incarcerated people to mine and for the state to sell and keep the prison financially solvent. And then later in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, again, environmental factors play a role in the state deciding to locate prisons in the Adirondacks. They're not trying to extract wealth from the land um, in the in the late 20th century, but the environment they're looking at is one that's economically depressed. Uh, it's one that contains a lot of abandoned uh, infrastructure, like old public schools, old mining uh, facilities, old tuberculosis hospitals that can easily be repurposed and renovated and reopened as prisons. So sort of at every step of the way throughout the research, I found that really the environment was really a primary factor in the planning, um, in the siting, and then the planning of prisons in the North Country. And I would say for folks who are interested in prisons in other parts of the country, um, and we all know about some of the more famous ones like Alcatraz and, and San Quentin and McNeil Island, I'm sorry. Of course, it comes to me now. Um, I think in every one of those cases, we can think about the local environment around those prisons and how people who were deciding to build such large pieces of infrastructure that would be home to hundreds or thousands of people on a daily basis um, had to think about 
um, had to think about water quality, had to think about sewage removal and solid waste removal and food provision and uh, snow removal and storm cleanup and maintenance of the buildings. I mean, all of this stuff requires environmental thinking. And so that's sort of where that's sort of my answer to your question. Maybe it's because I've had your book on my mind these last few months, but it seems there's recently been a dramatic increase in reporting on you know, the environmental threats to incarcerated people, whether that's tracking how prisons are so often found near Superfund sites or you know, prisoners exposed to contaminated water or even you know, depending on how we define environmental, um, reporting on prisons as epicenters of, of COVID outbreaks. Um, but these are actually rather distinct from the environmental dangers of prisons that some of the folks in your book are concerned about. Um, what were the environmental impacts they homed in on? So local people who were think, were confronted with the reality that a prison would be built near where they lived, where they vacationed, looked to, we can sort of generalize, each community was different. Each of the communities I look at was slightly different, but I can generalize a little bit. So first, there were concerns about the fact that this is a park, right? So in people, especially second homeowners and visitors, conceive of the region differently than people who live here full time. And for them, a park means a place for recreation, for leisure, for hiking, camping, skiing, um, to go out and see the mountains and the forests in their so-called pristine state. And a prison represented sort of the opposite of all of that. And so for second homeowners and visitors, prisons threatened to sort of undo everything they held dear about the Adirondacks. It sort of would, it sort of posed this um, threat that would be impossible to recover from um, if the prisons were allowed to be built. Um, so there's sort of just a sort of an intellectual opposition there as to what people think a park should represent. Um, then there are sort sort of more tangible uh, fears that people had about the effects of having more vehicular traffic um, going to and from the prisons, uh, the exhaust from trucks and vehicles traveling back and forth every day, um, the potential impacts of increased use of fresh local fresh water supplies and local uh, sanitary landfills and local sewage treatment centers, uh, that prisons would obviously be connected to those and place increased strain on, on those uh, institutions. There was concern about local wildlife populations, uh, that prison construction could potentially imperil uh, local wildlife populations, especially living in wetlands. And one one recurrent theme that I found while doing research, the state, for some reason, loved building prisons right next to wetlands. <laughs> I don't know if there was any strategy involved there, but almost every prison I've investigated was built near a wetland, and in some cases on filled wet wetland. And uh, that in, at least in a couple different cases, uh, killed off a large number of fish and other small aquatic organisms and destroyed critical habitat for local birds and, and other wildlife that use those areas. So 
Um, there were legitimate threats, le- legitimate fears, I should say, about potential threats to the local sort of natural world. Um, and then there were sort of these social concerns that were wrapped up in environmental concerns. Um, I, and Brian, I don't know if you want me to talk about that now. I I can wait if you like. Um, Either way. Okay. So as I said before, just to double back to the point about uh the fears about the park becoming something maybe less than a park if a prison's built. There were fears about uh, the area becoming populated by incarcerated people of color. Now, what's important to remember about this region is that it's predominantly white. Uh, I looked at the census reports during my research for each of the communities that I was studying and in some cases, you know, 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990 census, 2000 census, in some cases, there was one person of color living in the community. In many cases, zero. I mean, 100% white communities. And in New York State during this period, 80% of the incarcerated population uh, came from communities of color. So there's a huge racial disparity in these communities between the people who are going to be working in the prisons and guarding incarcerated people versus the incarcerated population themselves. And for many folks who lived in the communities, either owned second homes or visited the region year, you know, on a yearly basis, their racism came out um, during the plan- during the planning of these prisons. Um, but it was couched in environmental terms. And that's one of the points I make in the book. It's like, you'll see I, in a couple of the chapters, I talk about this, where local landowners and homeowners near the areas that were being considered for prison construction would write letters to state environmental regulators or to even the governor of the state or to other politicians and say, this place is a park. This place was founded as a park. It was created for people like me. And you're bringing all these people from the city and they're going to bring HIV AIDS to the community and their relatives are going to move up here and their relatives are going to go on welfare and they're going to siphon off resources from local people. And uh, and in some cases, the racism was sim- was just direct. And I won't repeat the words that were used in some of these letters, uh, you know, use your own imagination, uh, where they simply said that this is basically an area for white people and that people of color don't belong here, whether they're in prison or out of prison. And why did they say that? They said that because this is a park, right? So they always couch their racism in these sort of environmental and conservation terms, Now, what's interesting is that what I found in the research is that they never made these claims in public. They only made them in letters that they probably believed would be concealed from public view. So letters that I found um, in the Adirondack Park Agency's uh, archive that had probably never been viewed since they were originally mailed were filled with racist vitriol. But if you look at local periodicals, and even if you talk to people themselves, and I talk to a bunch of these people privately, you don't hear any racism at all. You don't really hear even any subtle racism. 
But in the private correspondence, it comes out. And I think that's sort of a function of the time period that they were writing in. Many of these people who made these claims, I would say, would call themselves liberal Democrats. Um, yet when confronted with the, with the possibility of their vacation homes uh, having a prison next door, their true feelings about people of color um, came bubbling to the surface. Yeah, and I, and I was struck by also, you know, there's there's two parts of this I want to underscore. One is that it's it's not just the incarcerated people, but it's the idea that their families are going to come up there to be near them, and or yeah. or that they might settle in the community after being released is the concern. Mm-hmm. And then also the just the dislocation sure. that's happening here for incarcerated people who are being shipped upstate, right, hours away from where they live, mm-hmm. and that's also a new feature right. of this era, right, and, and something that so there's there's already that, that 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 piece of it as well, which is really striking. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, so you have this one brand of environmentalism that you call this uniquely racist brand of environmentalism we see from these second homeowners and, and, and the like. Um, there's another brand of environmentalism that you investigate, which is kind of distinctly working class. Um, and most of mm-hmm. these communities you write about were quite conservative um, you know, in, mm-hmm. in their majority. And they still are. Right. I was clicking around the precinct map of the 2020 election and towns in your book were usually <laughs> plus 10, plus 20, plus 30 for President Trump, you know, last in the last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, but you found that the people in these places also proved to be, in your words, unexpected advocates of sustainable development. Um, and I wonder why you think mm-hmm. that was. And are there lessons here that we might offer to environmental advocates today looking to build cross-class solidarity? That's a very important question. Um, and one that I think uh, students and people, scholars, uh We'll be looking into more, I think, and it's a really important uh, area of focus for us to think about. Nobody wants to live near a potentially threatening piece of infrastructure, right? Nobody wants to live next to a piece of infrastructure that might pollute their drinking water. Nobody wants to live in a community that's filled with garbage um, along the roadsides. Nobody wants to live with crumbling roads or sidewalks. Um, and, and nobody wants to live in a place where the air is not fit to breathe. So in, different, in, in some of the communities, what you've described was quite clear, but in others, it was more subtle. When we talk about the local people who live here, who are mainly lower income, um, who are going to be the people who rely on the jobs and the prisons, yes. Many of them wanted the prisons to come in, but they did not want them to come in and damage their health or damage the health of their environment. I think that there's, uh, I think that sometimes, you know, when we think about political debates over environmental law and environmentalism, it's sort of, for many people, a very black and white issue, right? There's a conservative agenda and there's more, a more liberal agenda. But I'd say that. The vast majority of people want to breathe clean air. They want to drink clean water. They don't want to see garbage on the side of their their roadways. They want their cars, when they drive them, to be able to pass smoothly from destination uh, to destination. Uh, They want to be able to walk on their sidewalks and not trip and fall. Everybody wants a clean and healthy place to live. And so whenever prisons posed threats to people's health, even people who were in favor of prisons would stand against them. 
Um, you could see this in the community of Raybrook in Essex County, New York, which is near Lake Placid, where the uh, Winter Olympics were held in 1932 and 1980, which has two uh, prisons that I write about in, in the second chapter. You see this in my fourth chapter on the community of Lion Mountain, which was historically a mining town uh, where the local town officials kept trying to bring in these potentially damaging uh, developers who were threatening to undermine an already damaged environment. And the town population, which was mainly poor and not well-educated, stood against these plans, right? Stood against economic development plans that would have given them jobs, right? Because they were worried that these these new developers would come in and further damage an environment that had already been damaged by over a century of unrestricted iron mining. So um, I think that one of the lessons of, of, of my research and I think other folks too, who are working in similar topics is that, you know, we often think that, you know, people who vote Republican or identify as conservative are anti-environmental, they're um, against environmental law or environmentalism. But if you tell them, and I've talked to people, I've talked to people around here about this, if you were to take all of those laws away, take all of those regulators away and tell them, okay, this is what life would be like without these laws, without these restrictions. It doesn't take very long for them to come around and say, okay, you know what? Environmental law is a good thing. Just don't tell anyone I said that. Right. So um, I think that's a good, um, I think, like you said, this is understanding. This is a good way to build solidarity with people who've maybe been taken in by Fox News um, and maybe been taken in by what their neighbors say about tree huggers and uh, environmentalists, but just to realize that there's great value in in the EPA, for example. There's great value to be found in public health laws. And, you know, like you guys are all doing wearing your masks. I mean, if you value your life, there is great value in having these things. And um, it's often, and, and poor people can benefit from them in the same way as the middle class and the wealthy. So um, I think that's, you know, how I would answer your question. I wonder if we can loop back and talk more about the labor that incarcerated people do. You mentioned back at Denimora in the 1840s, you know, they were, they were meant to be there to mine. Um, and that might seem a very old timey vision, but but you're you you write that you no, know, the prisoners are laboring in this landscape straight through the period you're talking about. And and the the potential labor of incarcerated people is central to the political debates that go on about whether to put a prison in, and also central to the material effects of prisons that go in there, especially to the conservation infrastructure of the region, which is of course so crucial. And I wonder if you could say more about that. Sure. So when New York State first started planning to build a prison in the Adirondacks. This was in 1842. Uh, the State Assembly uh, Committee on Prisons held a hearing on where to build the state's next prison. The state's first two prisons, Auburn and Sing Sing, which you may all have heard of before, those two prisons were overcrowded um, really by the early 1830s. And the state said it needed to build another prison. And so it's looking for a new place to build a prison 
And it chooses an area that at the time had no community. There were no roads. There was no town. There was really up here, there was spruce forest. And they choose to build this first prison on a mountainside that's heavily forested. There's no road that goes there. Uh, There's no one living there. And so you might think, well, why in the hell would they decide to build a prison literally in the middle of nowhere? I mean, even indigenous people didn't go there. Um, It was just impossible to reach. And it's because they had a plan, right? The plan was, we're going to use incarcerated people to develop this place, to remove all these barriers to progress, to cut down all these trees, to flatten this, uh, this landscape, to build roads, to create iron mining infrastructure, to create wealth for the state, to keep this prison financially solvent, and to generate economic growth in the region. So no prison in New York State was ever built just to incarcerate people convicted of offenses. Every prison that was built had these grander ambitions in mind, right? And often involving uh, incarcerated people working in the landscape. So, for example, I, I, I'm, I've been up here during the pandemic. This is where I'm from. I usually normally live in New York City, but when the pandemic hit, I packed my bags and came home. Uh, I was just riding, driving on a road yesterday. There's a road here called the Plank Road. And it, today it's a road where there's just extreme poverty. I mean, make you cry driving along this road. That road was originally built out of wooden planks. And it was built by incarcerated people who were sent out to cut the trees down, to uh, saw them into planks, and to build this road. And many of the roads that people drive on in this county today were built by incarcerated people. They're nicely paved and smooth today, but in the past, uh, they were not. Without incarcerated people, it's hard to see how this area would have developed um, during that time. And you can see it in, uh, in the history, right? The prisons opened in 1845. And then if you study, if you look at the state, uh, legislature's annual reports on the prisons, the reports of the prison inspectors, the local periodicals. You see all the business relationships that are forged between the prison and the and local area communities nearby. And incarcerated people are central to that, right? There are factories built inside the prison. There's, there's the mining operation to be sure, but there are factories built inside the prison. So, for example, if one of you in the classroom, uh, let's say you made nails for a living and that's what you sold to the public and that's what you guys want to do. You're graduating high school and you're already planning. You're going to start your nail business, right? Get moving. Um, who's going who's gonna to make the nails for you? You don't want to make them, right? Because, you know, you're a hotshot entrepreneur. You want to sit on your yacht and look at your phone all day. Go to the state prison, sign a contract with the state prison. The incarcerated people will make the nails for you. They'll be paid pennies to do that. The nails will be delivered. You can put them on the shelves of local retailers and sell them and make money. And that's what this prison did for decades. So if we fast forward to the later part of the 20th century, even to now, 
what are incarcerated people doing up here now? They're fighting forest fires. They were, I just, I passed by a forest fire last summer up here and saw the state prison vans and saw incarcerated people fighting a forest fire. They assist with soil conservation and flood control projects. Um, they were really important in helping create the infrastructure for the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. Uh, they cut the ski trails at Whiteface Mountain. They even helped roll up posters, commemorative posters, and put them into these uh, tubes that were then mailed out to people who who purchased the Olympic memorabilia. They helped build the bobsled and luge run. They have built an untold number of campsites, lean-tos, hiking trails, small village parks, uh, ski centers, churches, libraries, public schools. Even the school I went to, uh, there was a small flood during the winter one year. Incarcerated people came and cleaned up the the school gym because it got flooded. Um, when we think about conservation and environmental history, we think about places being reserved, you know, national forests, parks, uh, wildlife refuges. We think about these places, we can sort of visualize them on maps, right? That you look at the map of the U.S. and you see Yosemite or you see Yellowstone or you see the Everglades. And sometimes they're colored in with green, right? And you think, oh, the government created this place or the government saved this place from development. Okay, that's not where the story ends, though, because these places, at least the Adirondacks, and I point this out in my book, the Adirondacks, yes, it was created by politicians, um, the, the Forest Reserve and the park. Um, politicians, you know, wrote those laws, governors signed them into law. But incarcerated people have maintained the Adirondacks, right? Um, not only with the work that they've done outside for a dollar a day, and that's what they're paid today, but also just with their presence, Right. And even people who wanted the prisons built up here in the 70s, 80s and 90s, they understood the great value that an incarcerated person's body brought to the region. Right. My father, who did not have a high school degree, would not have had a job without that prison. And that prison to function needs people in it. Right. So even incarcerated people who never leave the prison represent economic value to the people who work there and their dependents. So it's really hard. If you visit this region, it's very hard to visit a place, travel through an area of the, of the Adirondacks that has not been touched in some way by either the prison system or the labor of people who are in prison. The book takes us chapter after chapter, one battle after another over the sighting of new prisons and opponents lose them all. You know, that this is the era of mass incarceration after all, and all those being sent to prisons with these new sentencing rules um, have to go somewhere. And the state processes don't give veto power to local communities. So these new prisons get built. Um, that is until Tupper Lake. I think they tried five times there and, and, and the opponents won every time. Um, why did the story go differently in Tupper Lake? So Tupper Lake is an old logging town in southern Franklin County in the Adirondack Park. Um, by the early 1980s, Tupper Lake 
was uh, had fallen on hard times. The sort of downtown area of this village was boarded up and deserted and the unemployment was high. People were leaving. But what was happening around Tupper Lake was that prisons were opening and they were opening at a rapid clip. And so the village leaders in Tupper Lake realized maybe this is our ticket to economic prosperity. So Tupper Lake, at least in my book, represented an anomaly because in the other cases I write about, the state simply decides, okay, we're building a prison here. We're going to build one over here. Tupper Lake, by contrast, is saying, please bring us a prison, right? Please build a prison here. We need the jobs. We need the development. And as, as Brian points out, the community wanted the prison, built this task force, put these, pack, these documents together, did all this research, came very close several times. But the state each time said no, right? So throughout the 1980s, there were three or four different times where the state came very close to choosing Tupper Lake, but each time said no. And why did the state say no? The state started realizing that if they built prisons inside the Adirondack Park, they had to undergo state environmental reviews that slowed the process down. So the state eventually wised up and said, okay, we've got to build outside the Adirondack Park where we can just move in lock, stock, and barrel without going through any kind of environmental regulation. Now, in 1997, that changed. The state said, okay, we're going to reward you. You've been working now for 16 years to get a prison built here. We'll give you a prison. It was completely political. The state Senate majority leader, a man named Joseph Bruno, who just uh, passed away just, just this year, um, he was very good friends with the very powerful local state Senator Ronald B. Stafford, who was also the uh, chair of the state Senate Budget Committee. And these two had been friends for 30 years. And Senator Bruno and Senator Stafford were very transparent. I mean, in New York, the corruption is very transparent. It's almost just part of the way things are done here now. I mean, nobody really bats an eye. And there's no shame about it. Bruno just said, well, Senator Stafford's been my friend since 1965. He wanted a prison, so I gave him a prison. And, and Senator Stafford said, you know, Senator Bruno helped me out when I was a young new senator in Albany in 1965. You know, he's been a great friend ever since. And, you know, thanks for the prison. So it was completely political um, when this prison was awarded to Tupper Lake in 1997. And, but the problem was for the, for the town was that a local opposition had already built up to this prison for 16 years, right? There had been, they had tried so many times to get a prison built there, and each time they had been told no. There was already a base of opposition in the community. And so those people quickly reactivated in 1997 and started issuing some of the same warnings I talked about before, about environmental threats and about the threats related to incarcerated people or the supposed threats related to incarcerated people. But the state is pressing ahead. Now, the problem for the state, though, is that they probably jumped the gun too quickly in 1997. 
They started building the prison before any environmental reviews had even been done. And you might ask yourself, well, how is that even possible? Well, if you if you all you know followed the Trump administration's uh, management of the EPA during those four years, you know that environmental regulation is highly political, right? Environmental agencies are often divided between the professional employees, the career employees, the scientists who really don't have any partisan leanings, and then the administrators who are highly and deeply partisan. And the same is true in New York. The environmental regulators in New York are divided in that way. There are the biologists and geologists and hydrologists on one side who are just there doing sort of their nonpartisan work. And then there are the political appointees. In 1997, New York had a Republican governor who, who while he was himself, I would say, somebody who personally uh was in favor of conservation and environmental protection, had to deal with his Republican constituents, many of whom were not. And so he had appointed, I would, I would argue, anti-environmentalists to the leadership of this important environmental regulator, the Adirondack Park Agency, who would be responsible for conducting the environmental review of this project. So you have Republican appointees to the Adirondack Park Agency who are basically trying to ram this project through without undergoing the usual environmental checks and reviews. The project starts without any reviews being done, and then environmentalists step in, not members of the community, but professional environmentalists from the Sierra Club and the Adirondack Council they conduct their own investigation. They threaten to sue both the Adirondack Park Agency. They threaten to sue the environmental regulators who are not doing their job and the Department of Correctional Services, which was sort of colluding with the environmental regulators to get the prison built. And then a new investigation is done, and it's determined that the area that had been chosen to uh, for construction of the prison was actually right above... Uh, a really sensitive fresh water supply that would have been destroyed if a prison was built there. And then the state decided not to build the prison there and moved it outside the Adirondack Park. So in Tupper Lake, I think it was a case where the state really never wanted to build there. The decision to build there was political. And then once it became too politically difficult for the state to justify building a prison in that community, they pulled out very quickly. I know authors whose books came out during the pandemic have have been hemmed in and, and limited in what they can do um, in sharing it with people. And now that some of those public health restrictions are lifting, I hope you can get out there and, and spend a lot of time sharing this work in upstate New York and around around the country. Um, when you when things calm down a bit after that happens, um, imagine uh, turning your attention back to back to prisons again, or are there other topics that you're interested in? Well, I'll just say a couple. Um, ideas I'm working on right now. Of course, it has been very restricted. Um, really haven't been able to do anything um, the past year. Uh, one project that I'm going to start working on um, probably this summer is a digital map. So not a book project, but I want I want to create a digital map that's public, publicly accessible that shows every site 
where incarcerated people worked in the Adirondack Park from the 19th century to the present. Because again, I'm very interested in how maps influence our conception of environments. And maps, like in my book, Brian read my book, so he knows there's a map in my book that shows where the prisons are located. That was the first map that, I mean, I had that map professionally created. There are no maps like that that show you where the prisons are located until I had that one made. There are also no maps showing us the true impact of incarceration on our surroundings, right? And I think you could you could make a map like that anywhere in the country, and it would totally change the way you think about where you live, where you visit, to understand just how pervasive prison labor has been in this country. One could do the same with enslaved labor, right? You could even do that in New York. Um, just to document these places and document them digitally, yes. So people traveling can look at their phones and see, okay, wow, I'm, in a, I'm on a ski trail that was cut by incarcerated people. But I also think it's important that there be an update to the commemorative landscape of the Adirondacks, right? If you drive around here, you see a lot of historical markers, right? Benedict Arnold planned the Battle of Valcour here. And, you know, Champy, the lake monster that lives in Lake Champlain, he's, you know, swimming around over here. Uh, there's, even a, there's even a historical monument to the people who created the Adirondack Park. Um, but what would it do if people visited the Adirondacks and they're driving around and they see one of those markers and they stop and they see incarcerated people built this bobsled run or incarcerated people built uh, this park or this lean-to, right? I think it would definitely change the way that people think about incarceration. I think it would help people empathize more with incarcerated people, right? That they're paid a dollar a day that they, many of the people were sentenced to terms of incarceration based on police corruption. I mean, young kids were sent up here for 15 years, felony convictions after a police officer stuck some marijuana on them, right? And they helped keep this place viable for visitors and residents. So I think I'm going to start with a digital mapping project that sort of just Point, putting those pins on the map, showing where incarcerated people work, and also it, hopefully turn that into something that's more concrete and visible for people driving and walking through the region. Um, another, just a, a book project, I'll just add this in. Um, a book project I'm thinking about is going back to the 19th century and looking at the experience of incarcerated people of color in the North. In, in my first chapter, I related an incident from 1856. Now, this is almost 30 years after slavery ended in New York, where three enslaved African-Americans at the state prison in Dannemora were being effectively enslaved by the guards. And I'm interested in looking at how, and how incarcerated people of color were treated in prison during this period before the Civil War to see if there are other examples of incarcerated people of color being treated differently in Northern prisons than their white counterparts. So those are a couple of projects that I have in the hopper right now. Super exciting. Thanks for sharing. 
The book, again, is A Prison in the Woods, Environment and Incarceration in New York's North Country. Its author is Clarence Jefferson Hall, Jr. Its publisher is the University of Massachusetts Press, and you should go buy your copy now. Jeff, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you.